Let's get to our passage today. It comes from Colossians 1, 20, 21 to 23. And we're going to continue our series in Colossians here. Uh, let's get to the text. All right. Verses 21 to 23. The Word of God reads, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel which you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Let's pray. Father, we ask today that you would give us clarity and you would give us your understanding of salvation so that not only we would live lives that worship you, but Father, so that we can uh, you know, respond appropriately to all that you did for us. And we pray that that happens here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so, you know, I've been a pastor for many, many years. Uh, I don't know how, 25 years or so and stuff like that. And I've seen so many, th- I've seen it all. You know, I've seen, I've seen a lot of things. Anyway, um, and I'll be honest with you, the theological concept of salvation is very simple. Believe in Jesus Christ, put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you can be saved. That's it, okay? But the reality of salvation in people's lives is something that I'm still kind of getting my head around, and it's confusing at times. And so today, we're going to talk about salvation a little bit, but I kind of wanted to share with you at the beginning how confusing it can be. And, and tell me if you don't relate to some of these or understand or have heard situations like this that make salvation a little bit confusing. So I'm going to give you three situations, okay? And here's the first one. Uh, I was a youth pastor when I first started out. I had like the, you know, year seven to year 12s. I had a year eight student come and at, at a camp, you know, got super like involved with Jesus, got emotional, gave his life to Jesus Christ the last night of the camp. You know, just surrendered everything, but I never saw him again for the next 15, 20 years at church. Right? So what happens? If a person, give, if, a, if, if a year eight student gives their life to Jesus, but then from the next day never comes back to church for the next 15, 20 years, could care less about God, was he saved at the camp? Is it a tough one? Gets tougher. Okay. <laughs> uh, Let's say someone comes to Christ during uni, all right, much more mature, able to make a rational decision, right? And but they come to Christ, they surrender their life to Jesus, and then for the next 15 years, faithfully serves the church. That's pretty good, right? Faithfully serves the church, is involved, comes to all the meetings, serves in the ministries, all that kind of stuff. But during those 15 years, every CG leader this person's ever had. And when you talk about that person inside the community of the church, the, the, the kind of general thing is, uh, yeah, you know, even though he comes to church, like, ah, he, the way he lives outside of that church, whoa, you would really never know he was a Christian. He's making like sinful choices. His life never changes. He has no hunger for Jesus, doesn't make any choices for Christ. It's ob- like inside the church, it's pretty cool, but outside of the church, oh my goodness, you would never think that this guy was a Christian whatsoever. And he continues along that path. No matter how many times you talk to him, no matter how many times you confront him with his lifestyle, he continues to choose a sinful lifestyle. 
So inside the church, he's serving like there's no tomorrow. But outside, once you step out of, this, out of the church, it's completely different. Life's going in a different direction. So the question is, is this person saved? Right? Made the decision in uni. How about this one? Person comes to Christ. For the next 25 years, serves the church like crazy. Leader in the church. God uses this person powerfully to change and transform many lives. He changes and transforms like crazy to live like Jesus, loves Jesus, passionate for Christ, all out. Sounds pretty good, right? I'd be pretty confident this guy's saved and he's a Christian. But then all of a sudden, he leaves the church, joins a cult, and dies. Does he go to heaven? Tough one, right? These are real stories, right? So the question is like, wait, hold up. I thought you just had that faith in Jesus. But so all of a sudden, you come across situations like these, and I don't even know what to say as a pastor. I don't even know what to think. Maybe you guys have your own opinions as to whether they're saved or not, or you know what their final destiny is or not. Uh, and I think we'll all have our own opinions. But the good thing about our passage today is that it gives us direction on how to think about salvation, hopefully in a very clear way, to truly understand maybe what was behind God's heart when he decided to give us this free gift of salvation. And I hope that becomes clear to us all so that, you know, if, when we have clarity on what salvation really is, that'll help us take steps to work out our salvation with our lives here on earth. Is that cool? So that's what our message is about today. And obviously, I want to talk about salvation. And already, it's a little bit intense. It's a little bit, but and it is because this is a huge topic. I mean, whether someone goes to heaven or whether someone goes to hell is a huge topic. And that's what we should be talking about at church. And so I hope you do consider this uh, seriously. And I will try to do my best that I can to really just convey all these concepts very simply without violating Scripture. And what I'd like to do is simply honor God in the best way that I can. But my prayer is that salvation will become clear to you. And that through it, you'll be excited to live out your salvation with your lives here on earth. So I split up a message into two points, two main points, what God did and now what our response should be. So those are our two main points. But here is the main point of what I'm trying to say to you today, and that's this. God did everything. God did everything to make salvation available to us. He did all the work, and he did all the work through Jesus Christ. Now... What we need to do is live out that salvation for the rest of our lives to prove that we actually have it. Okay, it's that last part that's going to be a little bit dicey. But that's what we're going to talk about today. So God did everything to make salvation available to us. But now it's our turn to respond by living out that salvation till the day that we die to prove that we actually have it. All right, that's our message today. So let's talk about what God did. Verses 20, 21 to 22, it says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your own minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So what these verses are saying is very, very simple. Sins broke our relationship with God. And our sins literally alienated us from having a relationship with God. And not only were we alienated, but our sins made us enemies of God. And therefore, our relationship was broken. The proof of that alienation is, he, the verse is saying, all you have to do is look at your evil behavior. And if I can say it maybe in a nicer way, all you have to look at is your life and all of the non-godly behavior that is 
evidence in your life, and it just proves that you are not drinking from the fountain of purity and holiness and justice and righteousness within your life. That's not what you're all about, because that's what God's all about. And because we're not all about that, it proves that there is sin within our lives, which proves that our relationship with God is broken. That's the argument that's being made here in this passage. So what did God do? It said that he reconciled us through Christ. Reconciliation simply means restoring a relationship in full that was once broken. And Christ did that by uh, destroying that which broke us from God, which is our sin. He destroyed sin. He destroyed the power of sin within our lives so that we could now be reconciled to God. But here's what's special about this particular verse. What's special about this passage is that it tells us God's purpose in doing this. Hold up, Eddie. I thought I knew God's purpose because it says, for God so loved the world, that's why he gave us Jesus Christ. That's true. Love was his motivation. But what was God's purpose behind salvation? That's in this verse right here. It says, verse 22 says that his goal behind our reconciliation was so that he might present us as, his, as holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. What is it saying? It's saying that God saved us to create a holy people. That's it. God saved us so that he could have a holy nation, a holy people that are now following after him, wanting to become just like him. So if we understand that, then his goal is not just so that our relationship with him would be reconciled. That's like the means to the goal. But the goal was so that we might be holy just like him through that relationship through the reconciled relationship, because that was the only way we could become just like him. That's why he reconciled that relationship. God, So God saved us to be like him by being with him. Do you guys understand that? Is that cool? Which means that it was never God's intention for us to, say, to get saved just by putting our hands up at some camp, or maybe you came up to the altar one day, and that's which is awesome, which is beautiful, but it was never his intention for us to just raise our hands at a camp and say that you believe in Jesus, and then go and walk away and live how you, however you wanted to. That's not what it is, right? Because these verses prove it. Salvation wasn't, you know, salvation was given to us so that we could be overwhelmed with what Christ did upon the cross for us. And as we're overwhelmed with what Christ did on the cross for us, that's what would make us put our hand up. That's what's going to make us come to the altar and, and surrender our lives to him. And in light of what he did and who he is, we'd be like, oh man, I understand now that you're calling me to follow after you. And that's what the calling of salvation is. The purpose was for us to run after him. Christ made it possible so that we could be reconciled to God. But now that we understand God's purpose behind salvation was to make us a holy people just like him, image bearers, that's what we're giving ourselves to when we put our hand up to surrender our life to Jesus. That's what we're giving our life to when we come to the altar to surrender our life to Jesus. Is that cool? That concept is so important to understand. You know, and I hope you you totally understand that. Um, and so the whole point is, if we get salvation right, we look at Jesus and we realize, oh my goodness, look at the high cost that he paid so that we could be reconciled to God. But also we realize, oh wow, because what God's intention through that was, was so that I could be his child, I could be holy just like him, I could be his image bearer for the rest of eternity. What an honor, what a privilege. That's what I want to be. And so therefore, I never want to return back to my old sinful life ever again. And that is the picture of salvation that God wanted to happen for each one of us, Right? Have you ever heard a testimony like this? I've heard so many in my life, and it's, it's awesome. But people would say, like, you know, I first came to Christ in year eight. But 
I never made Jesus the Lord of my life until I was 20 years old. Did you ever hear any testimonies that started out like that? Yes? No? Maybe? No? <laughs> I hope you did. Anyway, all that's saying is this. You know, it, it, when he was in year eight, he understood what, what God accomplished for him through Jesus Christ. This free gift of salvation that was made available to them. And that's awesome. But then he didn't realize later on that, oh, whoa, hold up. God's purpose behind salvation was so that I could be his, so that I could live for him and, and glorify him with my life. Okay, that's what I want to do. And he realized that when he was 20. And so, and I rejoice whenever I hear testimonies like that because, uh, you know, I wish it happened at the same time. But I rejoice in those testimonies because, number one, it's great. We have someone, we have another person living for Jesus. But I also rejoice in that testimony because what it tells me is this guy stuck around church long enough to hear the, the second part of it, you know? Because I think a lot of us know that a lot of people sometimes don't stick around church long enough to hear the rest of it. And so I'm so thankful that we can, we can hear testimonies like that. And because, because many people don't, I think they really miss out on everything that salvation is about. You know, we just think it's like this free gift, and we take it, and we walk away, and we think that's it, but it isn't. You know, kind of like those free samples at Costco. You guys like, are you Costco people? Who's Costco people here? You know, I'm a, I've been Costco for so long. I, when I was in high school, I think Costco came into my neighborhood in America. And when I was in uni, a poor uni student, I'd like go to Costco and I'd be like, oh, dude, I have no money. And I'm so hungry. Oh, but it's okay. Because I'm just going to go to Costco and fill up on the free samples that they give out. If you don't know, Costco gives out free samples of food that they sell. Okay? And so the greatest thing when you walk into Costco is they're giving away, there's tons of these carts that are giving away these free foods. And, you know, whenever I, I still get excited today. I send my kids to go get more. You know, and, you know, and we get it, and we just eat it, and we get full on the Costco free samples. You know, but the thing is, I think a lot of people in the church treat salvation like a free sample at Costco. You know, we go, we get excited, and we understand this is for free, right? Just like salvation. This is for free, right? Yes, it is. And we, and we tell people salvation is free, and it is. And so they're like, okay, and they grab it, they taste it, and eat it, and they walk away. They don't even think twice. They don't realize that Costco gives away free samples, not so that you can just eat it, but they give away free samples in the hopes that you're going to buy that product, that you'll love that product so much that from this point on, you're going to buy it. you got to put it in your trolley. You know what I'm saying? That's the whole point. You know, I think a lot of people, in the same way, God offers salvation completely for free. He does. He paid the price completely so that we could be saved, absolutely free. And his motivation behind giving us salvation was love. He loved us so much. He saw us in our dire situation. He had to do something about it. He loved you, so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. But his purpose behind salvation wasn't just so that you could enjoy it and walk away. It wasn't just so that you could take this free gift like it's a, like a, like it's a free sample you know, at Costco and just walk away. And live however you wish with your own life. He saved us to create a holy people for himself. And my hope is that if you are here and you're saved today, and you accepted that free gift of salvation, and you actually give your life to Jesus, but you never heard that this was God's intention and motive and purpose behind salvation, I hope it's clear to you today. God saved you so that you could be his. God saved you so that you could be just like him, image bearers of the king. And that's what God wants from us. God made our salvation completely possible, completely free. Christ paid the price for all of our sins. He exchanged our sinfulness with his righteousness, and he reconciled us to God. And he did that so that we might be his holy people, so that we could be his image bearers in this world, or for eternity. Do you guys understand this? 
Just to make this clear, and just in case you don't believe me, there's actually one more aspect of this passage that makes it crystal clear, and that's also found in verse 22. And it's found in the language, actually, of verse 22. It says this, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's a very wordy sentence, right? Even in English, it's very wordy, but it's very purposeful. This language that you read right here, uh, he literally writes, Christ's physical body through death. That's awkward. But what he's saying is, the picture that he's painting is an Old Testament sacrifice. An Old Testament sacrifice means that a body had to die. And that's what it's being pointed out here. And when you look, look at the, read the language, it says, to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. That's also Old Testament sacrifice lang- language. Uh, the sacrifice was supposed to be without blemish. Free from, not accusation, but free from any type of impurities. That's the sacrifice that was worthy to be sacrificed in the Old Testament. Why are we talking about this? Well, he wants us through this. What he's saying is he wants us to realize how much it cost God for us to be forgiven. And in response, as we realize that high cost, that we would now commit ourselves in light of it, in light of Christ, to live holy as he's calling us to be, right? And this is, what, this is the picture that we're talking about here. You know, in the Old Testament, when they made a sacrifice, let's say you brought this unblemished lamb to the temple. What they would do is, you know, right before their sacrifice, right before they sacrifice it, the person that brought the lamb had to do one thing. Do you guys know what they had to do? They had to put their hand on the sacrifice. And two things happen when you put the hand on the sacrifice. There's two reasons why you put the hand on the sacrifice. And the first is this. It says that the sins of that person and their family gets transferred to this animal to be sacrificed. But the second thing that happens is, as this person sees viscerally and visually that this animal has to die in order for him and his family to continue to have life, in light of that death in order for me to have life, I now commit myself not to sin anymore because I realize it takes death in order for me to have life one more day. That's the experience of the sacrifice that's supposed to happen every single time in the Old Testament. That's why it was so important and huge to God. And so the anticipated result every single time you did a sacrifice at the temple was number one, thanksgiving. Oh my God, thank you that you forgive me of all my sins, that you made this sacrifice happen so that we can actually be forgiven and know you. But secondly, as now now that I realize how much it cost, I don't want to sin and I don't want to sin anymore because of all that it costs. Things have to die in order for me to live. I had a friend um, who burned down his house because he was playing with the Zippo lighter. Do you guys know what Zippo lighters are? You know, they're the Zippo. Anyway, it's a lighter that doesn't like go out. So, you know, he was playing with the Zippo lighter and it, it, it fell on his bed and his bed went up in flames and Instead of trying to put out the fire, he ran out of the house. Whole, the whole house burned down. It's not funny. Uh, the whole house burned down. And so I asked him when I was in uni, because that happened when he was like an early teenager. I said, so have you ever like picked up a Zippo lighter again? And he said, what are you, what are you crazy, Eddie? Why would I ever do that knowing <laughs> what my parents went through? You know, I like burned down a whole house. I'm never going to pick up a Zippo lighter again. And that's the whole point of salvation. That's the whole point of the sacrifice. When you see how much it costs for someone else to pay the penalty for your sins, you're not going to sin again. 
And that was the whole point of the Old Testament sacrifice. And in that same way, a true believer sees how much it costs for our sins to be forgiven. We look at Jesus and we see, oh my goodness, it took the death of the Son of God for me to be forgiven. I do not want to sin again. And that is the proper response. That's the proper understanding of what happened on Easter weekend. You know? And so that's in light of that cost, I'm going to commit myself not to sin again. Therefore, if we understand that, the picture of salvation was not just that, was not, was never just what the Lamb accomplished for the sinner. But it also involved the total commitment of the sinner to be just like the Lamb. Unblemished and holy because the purpose of salvation was for us to be a holy people. God did everything so that we could be reconciled, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be saved, so that we could live for him and worship him for eternity. God did all that through Jesus Christ. But the goal of salvation was not simply to be able to offer it to us free of charge. It is free of charge. But that wasn't the goal. But it was for us to realize how how amazing it is that God decided to send his own son to die for us so that the penalty for our sins could be paid for. And in light of that death and cost, we would realize, oh my gosh, this is how much I'm loved by God. This is how much God cherishes me. This is how much I'm valued in his eyes. And therefore, if he's willing to sacrifice his own son for me, I'm not going to sin ever again. And I want to be exactly who he calls me to be. This is the picture of salvation. Do you guys understand that? Do you guys see that? This is what we're talking about. God did it all. So now it's our turn. How are we to respond to that? And what's our response? Our response, I simply put it as faith. Verse 23. Verse 23 says, if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, oh, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Let's just stop there. So what's our response? The response is faith. First and foremost, if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time you're understanding, oh my goodness, is that really what salvation is about? Is that really what God did for me? Is that really how much I'm valued? And the answer to all those questions is yes. He loves you. He values you that highly. He wants you to be his. He does not want you to go to hell for an eternity and pay the penalty for your own sins. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay that penalty for you. And he wants you to grab a hold of that salvation and be saved and be his and know him. And the way you do that is simply by trusting in what Jesus Christ did upon the cross during Easter and by resurrecting from the dead. And if you trust in what Christ, who Christ is and what he accomplished for you, you can be saved. Is that cool? It really is that simple. Trust in Christ and trust in what he did for you upon the cross. That's salvation. But there's a condition here that's written in these verses that all of us need to understand. And this is where it gets a little bit dicey. This is where it gets a little bit uncomfortable. But the clarity of it hopefully will help you. In verse 23, it starts out with this word, if. If you continue. You know, he makes this promise of salvation, this promise of reconciliation. But then he says, if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Every theologian and every book that I've read this week, and I've read maybe like six or seven, says that this if is a conditional if, right? Meaning that our reconciliation will happen if we remain, if we continue in our faith established and firm. And the reason why it's dicey 
is because what it's also saying is, if we don't continue in our faith, then we will not receive the reconciliation. Okay? That's what it's saying. And that's the toughest part of this verse. Right? Our reconciliation will not come to completion. And that's a tough teaching, and that's a scary teaching. Wait, hold up, Eddie. Are you saying that our salvation is conditional? Right? Is it really conditional? And the answer is no. It is absolutely not conditional whatsoever. All you need is saving faith. All you need is faith, and you can be saved. But you need to understand what this verse is clarifying to us about salvation and faith. And let me just do that now to be absolutely clear. It's saying this. It's saying people who have genuine faith will continue in their faith, will be established and firm and will not move from the hope held out in the gospel. People who have genuine faith will be faithful, will just stubbornly just love God, go after God, even though they experience tough things within their life, they'll be like, you want to know something? But I'm just going to trust. People who have genuine faith will. That's what this verse is saying, right? But what does it mean to continue in faith? And this is how I want to clarify for you. In order to Clarify this phrase, what does it mean to continue in faith? Let me tell you what faith isn't before I tell you what faith is, okay? And this will hopefully help you out too. Faith is not just believing in your heart, you know, like, like let's say you got emotional at a camp or you got emotional at a service. Faith is not being emotional and like half responding to it or maybe responding to it at the service, but then leaving that place and never doing anything about it. That is not faith. Okay, I'll clarify that in a second. Faith is also not intellectually agreeing to a set of very holy facts about Jesus. Do you believe that he did this? Yes. Do you believe that he did this? Yes. Do you believe that he did this? Yes. Do you believe that this is who he is? Yes. That's not faith. You know, meaning, if you believe in those things and all of a sudden you leave the church or you go outside you know, after service and you don't do anything about it, that's not faith. Okay? So here we go. Faith is about active trust. Faith is about actively responding to truth. So therefore, if you did get emotional at a camp, and God did touch you, because I really believe when you get emotional at camps and when you get emotional at church, that, I, I believe that's God. God's moving in your heart. He's speaking to you. But he's not just saying how much he loves you, but he's calling you to be his. So if you, all of a sudden, if you leave that church after having this amazing experience with God and you don't do anything about it, that's not faith. Someone who has faith has the emotional experience, leaves the church and says, oh my God, I got to live for God starting from today. And does something and makes some choices to actually live for God. That's faith. Because you're actively trusting in what God just told you. You know, let's say all of a sudden you agree to, intellectually agree to all these set of facts. I think that's God. Because the normal person wouldn't agree to those facts about Jesus. Right? You're a sinner. You're going to hell. How do you know? Well, I just know. How do you know? You know, Jesus Christ died upon the cross. Jesus, you didn't even meet Jesus. He's like 2,000 years old, man. He's like dead. You know, how do you know? Who agrees to that? A normal person doesn't agree to that. But if you agree to that, I think that's God. Only God can enlighten you to actually believe in the gospel. That's huge. But all of a sudden, if you put, if you put your faith in those facts, or if you trust in those facts, and all of a sudden you leave the church and don't do anything about it, and you can't see the, how those facts should impact your whole life outside of this church, then I don't know if that's faith. But a person says, oh my goodness, if this is true, then oh my gosh, my life has to change in light of this truth. 
And when you may start making decisions to change your life in light of these facts and in light of these experiences, I think that's faith. It's actively trusting in what God is doing in your life, what God is telling you, what God is sharing with you, the truths that you've been you know, given. And now you're making eternal decisions based upon those things. I think that's faith. Do you understand? So uh, if you have questions about those things, please come and talk to me. You know, I'm, it's not like I know everything, but you know, I think this is what these facts are saying. You know, to me, faith is proven by actions. Faith is proven by eternal decisions that we make upon our beliefs, right? So even Jesus says, you can tell if a guy is a true Christian by what? By the fruit in their lives. What does that mean? Jesus is saying, you could tell when you look at this guy's life that he's making obvious eternal decisions based upon truth and based upon what God is doing within his life. That's it. It's that simple, right? Isn't that what Jesus is saying? And so to continue in your faith means that your life continually proves that you believe in Christ. That's it. It's that simple. To continue in your faith means that you're continually making decisions to love him, to be like him, and to follow after him, continuing in your faith. And what keeps us motivated every single day is this picture that our sins were nailed to the cross and that Christ paid the penalty for it. And so in light of his sacrifice and resurrection, all we want to do is live holy and unblemished just like he did. And no matter what difficulties or persecutions or pressures that we face, we'll continue. No matter what other attractive spiritual teachings that people might like dangle in front of our eyes, we'll still continue centered squarely upon Christ and the gospel. So what is it saying? If you're truly saved and you have faith, you will continue. That's what it's saying. But if you don't continue, then you may have to question whether you really have faith, like true saving faith or not. Is that fair? I know it's tough. Because here we go. Because if you don't continue, you will not experience the reconciliation promised. It's tough. It's a tough teaching. But I hope you guys understand it and respond to it in a way like, oh man, I want to continue. I believe in Jesus. I love God. So therefore, I will actively trust in him. I hope that's your response. So... Um, I know it's pretty harsh, this teaching. And I try to soften it because I'm human too. But the reason why the teaching is harsh is it's only harsh to people whose lives are really about themselves. Okay, this is even harsher. But if you're really in love with Jesus, it's not harsh. It just makes sense. You know what I'm saying? If you're in love with Jesus, you know that he deserves everything. You know that he deserves all that we are. He's not a free sample that you just taste and say, oh yeah, that's pretty good, and walk away. No. He's the God of the universe. And he deserves everything and every part of us. And people who love Jesus know that and understand that. And I hope that's what your faith is about. In love with the God of the universe who is in love with you and who couldn't stand just looking at you, you know, in your sin, so he had to do something about it, calling us to live every day in love for him. That's the way I look at salvation. So no matter what comes along, we continue in our faith. Okay? 
So how do we continue in our faith? Let me just end with some practicals. To help you with this, let, let me end with a few suggestions. Number one, uh, the language found in verse 23 gives us a lot of insight. It says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm. Those, those uh, words, established and firm, they're um, intentional building language. They're, 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 they're vocabulary words that builders and construction, or building and construction. And what it's saying is very simple. Um, houses take a long time to build, and they must be built brick by brick. If you rush that process, it's very simple. You know, that the wall cannot be a few degrees off. It's got to be just straight up. It's got to be solid. And that's the picture that of established and firm is build a solid wall, build a solid house, right? And what it's saying is uh, build your faith in a way that it becomes strong and established. How do you do that? Brick by brick, slowly but carefully and intentionally, right? Uh, and that's exactly what it's saying. It's saying... Um, Establish and firm means to build our lives in Christ brick by brick so that we can grow to have a solid faith. What are those bricks that we are supposed to build with? Christ and the gospel. Uh, the Bible says that Christ is the chief cornerstone. I don't know if you, we sing songs like, cornerstone. Like, oh, I don't know what the word is. We sing that the chief, Christ is the chief cornerstone. What a cornerstone is, is that's the first brick that's placed so that every other big brick can be aligned to it. That's the picture. What is that teaching us? It's teaching us that if we want to build our house, our faith properly, established and firm, that we need to align everything within our lives to Christ. That's the whole point of Christ being the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone within our lives. What does that mean? It means that we need to start building our lives one by one, slowly but strongly, based upon Christ alone. So, you know, obviously the, the first few things would be study scripture, pray, you know, and to get to know him better. But now we need to start practically aligning things within our lives so that we can build up upon Christ alone. If you're a uni student, how do you build your studies upon Christ? That's the struggle you have. That's what you need to figure out. And when you learn how to build your studies upon Christ and make it about Christ and the gospel alone, all of a sudden you'll graduate, you get a job, and then the challenge would be how do you make your job? about Christ and the gospel alone? How do you align your career to Christ and the gospel? How do you align your family, your marriage, your relationships, you know, your finances to Christ and the gospel? But as, as, you, as you do that slowly but surely, and as we learn how to do that progressively as we get older and older, you know what I'm going to say? I bet in about 10, 15 years, you probably have a pretty established and firm faith because you've been building about, about him. It's been centered about him, and you've been aligning aspects of your life to him. Secondly, to help us, we also need the church. you got to be involved in the church. You know, the function of the church is to help us stay established and firm. And that's why we have services like this to worship together. Together always makes our faith stronger, right? There is strength in numbers. Together always makes our faith stronger. And that's why we have things like CGs, so we can study the word together in depth and help each other grow. That's why we have ministries to teach us how to serve one another and to teach us how to build other people and you know through discipleship and things like that. The greatest function, I think, of the church, this organization, the greatest function of this church is something that is absolutely humanly unpleasant, but absolutely spiritually necessary, which is this. If you start serving the church, all of a sudden, you'll get challenged, personally. Of all your selfishness, of all the things that you don't want to do, of all the crap that goes on at church sometimes, and the only answer to that is, oh man, i got to die to myself and serve people. Right? That's, the, the greatest, that's one of the greatest functions of the church. 
because it teaches us every single day to conform ourselves to Christ and his attitude and you know, his heart for his people. And as he laid down everything in order to serve us so that we could know him, that's our function is to lay down who we are so that other people can be served and know God. And that's why serving the church is so important. And that's why when you volunteer to serve the church, expect it to be ugly and expect it to be difficult and expect it to be unpleasant. If it's unpleasant, you probably have a pretty decent church. You know, they might actually be doing a good job and teaching you well and training you well because it's supposed to be. It should confront your sinfulness. It should confront your selfishness. It should confront you continually. That's good. I know it sounds unpleasant, but it's good and we need it because our default mode is myself. Don't touch me. Don't make me uncomfortable. Don't make me unhappy. But the cross is the exact opposite. And Jesus says, if you want to come follow me, you got to deny yourself. Carry that cross, that suffering, road to suffering, the road of suffering, so that people can have life through you. That's why I saved you. So if please serve the church. But when you do, please don't expect it to be nice and good and happy, happy, chappy. But if it is tough, that's awesome. If it's personally challenging, that's even better. And if it causes you to like continually repent and pray for others and ask God for help, wow, we're doing a good job, okay? Because that's sad. And so if I, if I can ask you, if you decide, that's what we need the church. We do need the church. And if you do serve the church in that way, can you please just have that attitude, say, you want to know something? I'm going to volunteer for this ministry. I'm going to volunteer to be a leader. I'm going to volunteer. And the only attitude I'm going to have is humility, service, and dependence upon God. Because I know that's the only things I really need to make to be a success. And when you do, God will use you powerfully to bless others. Okay? Cool? Join all of our ministries. <laughs> you know, you'll have a great time. Uh, because any other attitude will destroy the church. Okay, here we go. Here's two helpful hints, and then I'll close. Number one, seek for progression. If, you wanna, if you're going to live out your salvation, seek for progression, not perfection. There will always be inconsistencies between what we believe and how we act. That's normal. Just make it your goal to shorten the gap between what you believe and your actions. And just, you know, a truly strong building is never built quickly, but it's always built carefully and intentionally, okay? Um, number two, repent, but never resign, right? We will fail. We will sin. We will make huge mistakes as we follow after God. It's okay. Okay? Um, but never give up on your faith. And the reason why is because God will never give up on you. Our failures and, mistake, and mistakes are written in the plan already. But so is his grace upon our lives. So never give up. Just repent, recommit. Continue your faith by actively building your life upon Christ the chief cornerstone. I just want to end my message by reading 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10. I'm just going to read it to you. And as you listen to this, I hope it makes sense. It's usually a passage that doesn't make sense if you're just reading your Bible. But maybe in light of our passage today, I hope it makes complete sense to you today. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock to make them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful Light, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. You know, God did everything. Christ did all the work to make salvation possible for us. And now he just simply calls us to put our active faith in him. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, Will you do that today? Will you do that right now? Just talk to him. Repent of your sinfulness. And in light of all that he did for you, just commit yourself to not sin again. To live for him. To live as his holy person. Maybe you're a believer here today, but you never saw salvation like this. The call to live holy as he is holy. God also paid the penalty for you. And in light of his sacrifice, let's give ourselves to live as his holy people. Let's live every single day to build our lives on Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that you spoke to so many in this room about salvation in their lives. I bet there's a moment we can think back and we know this is when you were talking to us. This is when you were speaking to us. This is the moment that you called me to you. And Father, we thank you that you've done that. Lord, we pray that you now give us the courage to really just live for you, to put our faith in you, to have this active trust in you, to align every part of our lives so that you might be glorified and so that we might become your people. Help us to be a people for you so that you might be honored and glorified and pleased. That's all we want, God. So do that within our church. And if there are people here who have yet to give their lives to you, God, continue to speak to them, continue to speak into their hearts and into their minds, whatever it takes, God, so they realize how beautiful and awesome Jesus Christ really is and that they are a cherished child of the almighty God, King of the universe, 
Lord, may that fact and that just awesome truth be their reality and become their reality one day. Lord, we just thank you. We praise you. We are so unworthy of the gift that you gave us through Jesus. But Lord, help us every single day to love you, to honor you, and to make you great through it. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.